Well, friends, we are spending some time this summer in the Minor Prophets. And we just recently finished last week a five-part series through the book of Jonah. Those sermons are online for you if you're interested in those and missed any of them. We leave that content to you. But we move on this morning to the book of Habakkuk. As we consider this short book and its content, it's good for us to realize that we are not the first generation of God's people to struggle with how things go in this fallen world. We a lot of times think that the trials that we are going through are the greatest ones. But saints of old, God's people through history, have always wrestled with the fact that things fall apart in a world that is wrecked by sin. God's people through history have at times wondered where God is and have asked that, have cried out to Him in those ways. Lord, where are you? We are not the first generation of God's people to think that, to cry that, to say, God, what are you doing? Are you doing anything? Are you going to do anything? Do you see what's going on? The scripture is full of this kind of lament and this kind of sentiment from God's people. Think, for example, of the book of Job. That's a very personal account of a man whose life has literally been turned inside out and upside down. And he asks these questions. He cries these same things. We often, when it comes to the book of Job, we read chapters 1 and 2 and then we'll skip to chapter 38. There are 30 some odd chapters between those of wrestling, of asking these very questions. And then we have the book of Habakkuk that we come to today. Think of this, if Job is a personal scale, think of Habakkuk on a national scale. The people of God, the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom. We're going to be thinking about the cries of God's people on that level through the pen of the prophet Habakkuk. And so if you have your Bibles with you, turn in them to the book of Habakkuk. You will find that immediately following the book of Nahum. And that may or may not be of use to you. But if you have scriptures, turn there. If you have an app, open it. If you don't have either of those things, we will aim to get the words to the sermon text on the screen behind me. As you're turning and making your way to Habakkuk, let me give us a few words in terms of historical setting and some background that will be useful for us to keep in mind. I've already mentioned this in passing. Habakkuk is a prophet in Judah, the southern kingdom of Judah. Many in the room know that after the reign of King Solomon, the kingdom of Israel was split in two. Because of Solomon's sin, the Lord said this would happen. And so the kingdom was divided into the northern kingdom of Israel with its capital city in Samaria and the southern kingdom of Judah with its capital city in Jerusalem. So Habakkuk is prophesying in Judah, the southern kingdom. The language of chapter 1 and verse 6 indicates a date or a time frame after the year 626 B.C., when the Chaldeans would have taken control of Babylon. 
the Chaldeans, it's very clear, are known of because of the way the Lord references them, but they are not yet the superpower in Mesopotamia. The Assyrians are still largely that. The spiritual and moral description that we're going to get from the prophet in verses 2 to 4 of chapter 1 does not square, though, with the reformation that took place under King Josiah's reign. Josiah reigned from 640 to 609 B.C. Many in the room are familiar with the reforms that he led. And as we will consider again later, under the Davidic covenant, as goes the king, so goes the kingdom. When Judah had a good king, things went well for the nation. When Judah had a wicked king, things went very badly for the nation. So all of this to say, it does not seem that Habakkuk is writing during the reign of King Josiah, but it seems that it was perhaps the reign of Josiah's son Jehoiakim that may have been reigning at the time. He was a very wicked king, reigned from 609 to 598 B.C. Just a few other historical notes for you. I do this in part because I want you to understand that redemptive history and world history are connected. We tend to often read the scriptures divorced from the history of the world, and it will be good for us to continually be reminded that God orchestrates and ordains all things in the course of world history in order to accomplish redemption. So, as we see the rise and fall of empires throughout the history of the world, we see that God is at work to accomplish the plans that he's had before the foundations of the world. That's why we talk in these terms. So, Jehoiakim, Josiah's son, is reigning from 609 to 598. Babylon would overthrow Nineveh, the capital city of Assyria, in 612. We heard a series last year from our brother Mackenzie on the prophet Nahum. Nahum wrote of how Nineveh would be destroyed by the Babylonians. We just finished a series in Jonah where we saw prior to being destroyed, God granted repentance to the city of Nineveh and then decades, generations later, the Babylonians would come in and conquer. So that's a historical context note for you. Babylon would become the undisputed Mesopotamian superpower in 605 BC when they defeated the Egyptians and the Assyrians in a battle known as the Battle of Carchemish. So putting all of this together, it seems that the book of Habakkuk was written after 609 and prior to the Babylonian siege of Jerusalem in 586. Because it's very clear that what's in view here, as we're going to talk about today, is that God is raising up the Babylonians as a measure and an instrument of his judgment against the southern kingdom of Judah. That's historical. That's background. Very quickly before we read the text for today. I want to give you a feel for the book of Habakkuk from 30,000 feet. It's good for us to understand the whole before we look at the parts. For starters, Habakkuk is an unusual prophetic book in that Habakkuk the prophet never publicly addresses the people of Judah, nor does he address any human beings at all. The book is completely a dialogue between the prophet and God. In particular, the book documents the prophet's own wrestling in his heart with what he sees going on in the kingdom of Judah, the covenant people of God, and he then wrestles with what the Lord tells him he's going to do. That's chapters 1 and 2, effectively. Chapters 1 and 2 are essentially a Q&A session between Habakkuk and God. Habakkuk raises complaints 
and the Lord because he's kind and compassionate and willing to condescend actually responds to his prophet who raises complaints. The first complaint that Habakkuk will raise is about the state of things in Judah. He looks around in the southern kingdom. Again, covenant people of God, covenant nation of God, and things are in a state of spiritual and moral disaster. Gross immorality, rampant idolatry, there's injustice everywhere, and Habakkuk is wrecked in his heart over that and raises that complaint to God. Do you see what's going on? Are you going to do anything? And the Lord responds, I'm raising up the Chaldeans as a measure of my judgment. And then Habakkuk says, I don't know about that because the cure might actually be worse than the disease. Because those are wicked people, right? To which the Lord responds, child, you don't understand. I have a plan and a purpose. I will make all things right. The righteous shall live by faith in my promises and what I've said I will do. And then chapter 3 is a psalm that the prophet Habakkuk writes to God. It catalogs God's faithfulness to his covenant people in the past, in the exodus at Mount Sinai, in the conquest of Canaan. And then it ends, perhaps the most famous verses outside of chapter 2 and verse 4 in Habakkuk are chapter 3, verses 17 to 19 where he confesses that he will trust the Lord in spite of everything around him falling apart. In spite of what's coming, Babylonian siege, Babylonian captivity, I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. So that's Habakkuk, flyover. With all of that in your mind and in your backpack, let's look to the text for today. We're going to consider Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Listen as I read. This is the word of God. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth, for the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men, whose own might is their God. Amen. We thank God for his word today and every day. 
The plan for this morning is to survey the text to, on my part, attempt to explain it, help us get the sense of it. And then after having walked through the text in its various paragraphs, its various sections, I will offer two points of further reflection and application for us and then a conclusion. So that's the plan. The text, two further points, and a conclusion. So let's look to the text and survey it together. Let's get the sense of it. Make sure we understand what's being communicated. If you put your eyes on verse 1, pretty simple verse, the Habakkuk, the prophet, is identified for us. And we move on now to verse 2. In verses 2 to 4, we see there Habakkuk's complaint regarding the state of things in Judah. So this is a prophet in the southern kingdom. As I mentioned earlier, he's looking around, surveying the landscape. Things are terrible. In terms of the moral and spiritual condition of the people of God, it's bad. That's verses 2 to 4. A brief word here. Judah under the old covenant. Let's just make sure we're on the same page. Judah under the old covenant. When we use the language old covenant, you should think three covenants that comprise that. The covenant God made with Abraham, the covenant God made with Moses, and the covenant God made with David. The Abrahamic, the Mosaic, the Davidic covenant, that is the old covenant as we refer to it. God established the nation of Israel through these covenants. He was working in a unique way, excuse me, in and through this people that he established through these covenants. He was fulfilling promises that he had made to Abraham regarding descendants and land. He had given both. Most importantly, he would bring the Christ through the people of Israel in general and through Judah in particular. Jesus would hail from the tribe of Judah. So it's important that we understand that when we think about Judah under the old covenant, God is doing two things. He is doing temporal things in Israel through the physical offspring of Abraham. And God is doing eternal things in Israel in and through the spiritual offspring of Abraham. All of that is going on simultaneously. So keep that in mind. I mentioned this earlier. Under the covenant God made with David, he had told David that he would not lack a son to sit on the throne, provided that that son kept the law. Then in 1 Kings chapter 9, we're explicitly shown that however the king reigns, whether in righteousness or wickedness, that will have a tremendous amount of fallout for the nation. If the king obeys the law and reigns in righteousness, God will bless Israel and establish the king's throne. But if the king is wicked and breaks the law and walks in all the sin that his fathers had walked, then the nation would be cut off and the Lord would bring judgment and ruin upon the nation. As goes the king, so goes the kingdom. The history of Judah bears this out. Read the book of Kings, the book of Chronicles, and you will see it. With very few exceptions, wickedness reigns and the nation suffers. To the extent that the northern kingdom of Israel is conquered and exiled by the Assyrians, to the extent that the southern kingdom of Judah is conquered and exiled by the Babylonians, the Lord would literally rip his people from the very land he had given them. 
and send them into exile under foreigners. So let's consider Habakkuk's complaint. In general, he is grieved by how the wicked prosper at the expense of the righteous. Even amongst, here's the kicker, even amongst the covenant community in Judah, the wicked prosper at the expense of the righteous. But, as concerned as he is about that, he is even more concerned at the Lord's apparent inactivity in the face of everything that's happening. Lord, where are you? Do you even know what's going on? How long do I need to cry out to you about this before you do anything? You don't hear, apparently. You're not ready to save those who are being preyed upon. You remember Deuteronomy 28? It's an important chapter. Deuteronomy 28 contains about 15 verses or so of covenant blessings for obedience. And then dozens of verses regarding covenant curses for disobedience. Disobedience or obedience to what? The law of Moses. Under the Mosaic Covenant, which governs the Old Covenant, there are blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. Yet, from the perspective of Habakkuk the prophet, there's disobedience everywhere with apparently no consequence. Surely, this would have been in his mind. In verse 2, he says, O Lord, how long? It's where he starts. How many times have we read those exact words from the lips and the pens of God's people? How long? It is such a common cry of the people of God through history when they look around and see evil and injustice. The people of God ask effectively, Lord, where is your justice? Habakkuk says, I cry for help, you don't hear. I cry violence and you don't save. Verse 3, he continues on. Why, Lord, do you make me look at all of this iniquity while you sit idly by and don't do a thing? It's as though from the prophet's perspective, he's complaining to God, you just, you just look at wrong and you don't do anything about it. There is destruction. Look at the language of the verse. There's destruction and violence all around. Things are being torn apart, literally and figuratively. Right? Property being destroyed or taken. Lives being destroyed. Real harm being done. Lord, are you going to do anything? Verse 4. These words, striking. So the law, the Torah, is paralyzed. And justice never goes forth. Rampant wickedness amongst the people of Judah has made the law useless from the perspective of the prophet. And corruption has made it so that you cannot find a just judge in all the land. There is not a balanced scale to be found. For the wicked, he says, surround the righteous. And so justice goes forth perverted. There is nothing new under the sun. One 
hopeful note, though, the kind of ray of divine grace breaking through the clouds, is the fact that there are clearly at least a few who are righteous in the land. Amen? Amen. This takes us to verses 5 through 11. The Lord is going to respond. And he's going to respond to the prophet's complaint by telling him that he's doing a thing. He's raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, as an instrument and a measure of his judgment against Judah for Judah's sin. Let's look at verses 5 to 7 for just a moment. The Lord says, Look among the nations and be astounded. Stand and wonder at what I am doing. I'm doing a thing that you would not believe even if you were told what it is. I'm raising up the Chaldeans. So again, we notice here, the rise of the Chaldeans who would become the Babylonians, a great empire in the history of the world, the rise of them to the extent that they rose was the Lord's doing. And it was all a part of His plan. And the Lord comes on out with it. He goes ahead and says how wicked these people are. That's important. He doesn't hide that. He doesn't pull any punches. Because Habakkuk, you see, is going to be wrecked by that reality. Habakkuk is going to be bothered by how wicked the Chaldeans are. Lord, how could you use these people? But God doesn't hide that. He says it. Verse 6 and following. That bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. They define righteousness and justice however they see fit. Their standards of right and wrong and even human decency are completely self-determined. Verses 8 and 9. The Lord describes the fierceness, the speed, the ferocity of the Babylonian army. This language is very similar to how the prophet Nahum describes what would happen to Nineveh when Babylon came to wreck shop. The Lord compares the Babylonian soldiers to ravenous wolves and birds of prey that are unflinching and relentless in hunting and devouring. They gather captives like sand. There are so many captives. It's like the sand on the seashore. Verse 10. The Babylonians, they scoff at opposition. So powerful, so arrogant are they. They mock other kings and rulers and powers. They laugh at fortified cities. They're not even a challenge. They pile up the earth and take it. This is an allusion to siege warfare from that era of history where literally ramps made out of earth were built so that you could ascend and scale the fortified walls of a city. And then verse 11, the Lord goes on. Having conquered a city or a people with ease, they just sweep on like the wind onto the next one. So make no mistake, this is important. The Lord knows who and what these people are. He knows who and what the Chaldeans are. He calls them, verse 11, guilty men whose own might is their God. Guilty. Who worship their own might in battle who are drunk with power and with conquering other peoples. 
The Lord does not for one second imply that he's using the Babylonians because they're upright or even decent. He doesn't for one second imply that he's doing what he's doing because the Chaldeans are more noble than the people of Judah. More on all that next week. You can come back for part two. But now let's reflect together for the remainder of our time. I have two points of reflection and then a conclusion, which is effectively a third point of reflection. We're going to meditate together. We're going to apply. Point one. I'll say it twice. Point one. God's revealed will, his purposes, and what we need to concern ourselves with. Let me say that again. God's revealed will, his purposes, and what we need to concern ourselves with. All right, so here's what I'm getting at. We tend, and by we, I mean Christians in the church, we tend to fixate on all the wrong things. We tend to major on all the wrong things. And we tend to fall off of every side of every horse in sight. So, let's reason together from the Word of God. The Lord has given us His revealed will in His Word. You hold it in your hands. He has told us everything that we need to know for life, for godliness, for salvation. He has told us what we're to believe. He's given us promises to trust, warnings to heed. He's given us his law to crush us in our sins, show us what and who we are, and drive us to his Christ. He's given us his law to guide our living. And he's also, in his revealed will, his revealed word, he has told us about his own character. The first time that he describes himself in the scriptures, he describes himself as a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, showing steadfast love to thousands of generations, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, but who at the same time will by no means clear the guilty. This is who he is. We can trust him. He tells us that. He also, in his revealed will, has pulled the curtain back enough to help us see and know that he is in control. He helps us rest in the fact that he's got this thing, that this is not going off the rails, that this is not a mop-up operation because it's gotten out of hand. And he tells us in his word that the secret things belong to him. But what's revealed belongs to us and our children forever. Beloved, the Lord is doing all kinds of things to bring about the redemption of his people. He's doing all kinds of things now that are for our eternal good and for his honor. And many of those things, verse 5 from our text today, we would not believe if we were told. God is sovereign. 
over and in all things. Our God is in the heavens. He does everything He pleases. He accomplishes all of His purposes. He declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. His counsel will stand. When He speaks, it happens. He is purposeful over and in all things. We had a membership class yesterday. And one of the many things that we talked about over several hours is the reality that the Scripture does not simply present God as a God who knows everything. It's not just that He knows the future. It's that He has planned the future. Purposefulness characterizes the Lord. He's always purposeful. And He is perfectly wise over and in all things. This includes empires and nations and world history. Now, important caveat, additional piece to say alongside that. God is not sovereign over these things, empires and nations and world history, in some arbitrary way. He is sovereign over them in order to bring about His purposes of redemption in and through Christ Jesus to the praise of His glorious grace. This is true even when God is using nations and empires as instruments of His judgment as He did a number of times. They're recorded for us on the pages of Scripture. So understand, all of this, God's dealings with nations as recorded on the pages of Scripture is still ultimately about the coming of Christ to save a people. And it's about demonstrating the wisdom, the power, the righteousness of God on the world stage. I trust this is clear regarding the people of Israel. How it's about redemption and God's honor. This nation would give birth to God's Christ. God had clear purposes through this nation. But even when it comes to other empires, think about other empires we read of in this book. Egypt, the greatest world power For a time, God did some things of a redemptive nature. He worked in salvation and judgment there. Assyria, Mesopotamian superpower. God did some things with them. Used them as an instrument of His judgment against the northern kingdom of Israel. And then says some really strong, I mean, fighting words in Isaiah 35, 36 about what he will do to the king of Assyria, Sennacherib. And how he's going to turn him back out and put a hook in his nose and he will march back out the way he came. And God, in his judgment, conquers Assyria using an instrument called Babylon. Another Mesopotamian superpower. Babylon, of course, would carry the southern kingdom of Judah into exile. We're going to think about this more Inevitably, God will make all things right. The Babylonians are wicked. So what does the Lord do in the course of world history? There's judgment on Babylon in the form of the Persians who conquered them. And we could go on. The Persians are conquered by the Greeks who are then conquered by Rome. Rome, the greatest empire in the history of the world. No offense to the United States. I don't mean that in a sarcastic way, but that's not debatable. Please do not understand. I love this country as I know you do too. And 
a dose of humility would help us in acknowledging that the American experiment is yet young. We'll move on. Rome, though, the greatest empire in the history of the world. Jesus, God the Son incarnate, shows up under Roman rule. No coincidence. Greatest empire in the history of the world. Through the rejection of his own people, Israel, and under Roman rule, Jesus was put to death in accordance with the Scriptures in order to save a people that were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. It is remarkable. So as the Lord said to Habakkuk, stand and wonder at the wisdom and the might of our God. He rules and reigns over all things to accomplish every single one of his purposes. Continue to think with me about this, though. I want us to be careful and precise in how we speak and in how we think. When it comes to Babylon and Judah, God told us exactly what he was doing. You understand that the prophets are divine commentary on world history and on redemptive history. God also, in the pages of Scripture, told us exactly what he was doing with Assyria and Israel. He told us exactly what he was going to do with respect to Babylon and Assyria. He told us exactly what he was going to do with respect to Persia and Babylon. All of this is written. All of these were tied to God's work in and through the covenant people of the nation of Israel to work in salvation and judgment. That matters. The Lord, hear this. Where am I going with this? you realize that something happened between then and now. Something called the New Covenant was established. A different era of redemptive history arrived. And the Lord has not told us exactly what each war, each rise and fall of a nation means in this era of redemptive history. Track with me. Think about the words of our Lord in several of the Gospels, the Olivet Discourse, but for right now, Matthew 24. In the last days, which we are living in, by the way, and the church has been living in the last days since Christ ascended to heaven. Okay? In the last days, there will be, quote, from Christ, wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. He goes on to talk about how these things are the beginning of the birth pains. The birth pains of what? Final redemption. The last days from when he ascended to when he returns are characterized by these things. Final redemption's coming. But there are birth pains, and the end is not yet. We can say that with certainty. But we do not know what is specifically going on in each war, each rising and falling of nations from God's perspective, because He has not told us that. And even in saying that God is sovereign over the nations for the purposes of redemption, true. That does not mean that we understand how everything that occurs on the geopolitical stage relates to God's purposes of redemption. We don't know that. So do not 
fall into the trap, as so many well-meaning believers do, of trying to read the tea leaves and read through every line of God's providence in the newspaper or on the website in order to discern things that are not ours to know. We trust Christ. We trust the promises of God to us in Him. We love our neighbor and we await the return of our Savior. It's what we do. So that's point one. I hope you were able to track with me through that. God's revealed will, His purposes, and what we need to be concerned with. And what we don't. Point two. The header for this one is justice meters and lament. Justice meters and lament. All right, participatory time. Show of hands. How many people know what I mean by saying justice meter? Like that thing that goes off in you when you, you perceive something to be wrong. Particularly, you have been wrong from your perspective and it's just going off like crazy. That's a justice meter. We all have them. And then lament. You know what that means. So Habakkuk's justice meter in this passage is going off because of what's going on in Judah. At least, when you say this, at least some of that, perhaps a lot of that is legit. Things are bad. Alongside that, Habakkuk's lament over what's happening is certainly legitimate. He's grieved over what's going on amongst God's people, and he cries out, Lord, what's up with this? That's appropriate. God's people, as we have said, have often cried similar things. I leave it to you this afternoon. Read Psalm 10. Read Psalm 12. Read Psalm 13. They're all right there together. It's a great little sample set of this kind of lament. Things are bad. Lord, how long are you going to act? Are you going to do anything? So having said all that, we're going to see this more pointedly with Habakkuk next week, Lord willing. His justice meter and our justice meters are messed up because of the fall. All right? They're messed up. So many times. Here's, here's how we know they are. Right? dead giveaway that they're messed up, is that many times our justice meters go off with respect to God. You hear me? We're angry with Him. We're like, you are wrong. When it comes to how He works, when it comes to how He does things, it doesn't sit well. That's how we know that we're in error. Gravely in error. Bottom line, friends, is that our perspective is so limited and finite. There are things that we see and we're like, that's not right. And then we are convinced that we could do it better. You know it's true. You know it's true. We would never say it out loud. That's what we think. The way we speak gives us away. Even amongst God's people, this has always been a thing. Always been a tendency. Because we don't understand and because we're hurting, we hurl complaints and even insults at the Lord. Now, this is a sweet thought. Having considered that reality about us, about God's people from all time, consider this. For those who are the Lord's, how does the Lord respond and handle it? Consider Job. 
In the end, what does God say? We're going to see this in Habakkuk. In both cases, the Lord is not wrathful. The Lord does not condemn. The Lord does not judge. He's kind. He condescends. He comes down. He actually answers. He actually answers. Psalm 103.14 He remembers our frame. He knows our frame and remembers that we are dust, right? He's kind and compassionate. His word to Job, his word to Habakkuk is going to be essentially this. Child, you don't understand. I am God. I made all things. I know all things. I'm the judge of the earth and everything I do is right. I promise you, this thing is not off the rails. I have my purposes and you'll see. You'll see. And all of that is legitimate for God to say, not just because he's God, but because in the case of Job, in the case of Habakkuk, and in our case, the Lord can say that because he had ordained that God the Son would take on flesh and come and fulfill all righteousness for his people, that he would come into a fallen world and suffer at the hands of wicked men, not for his own sin, but for our sin that he would satisfy the justice of God once and for all, for all of the people of God from all time. He would come and conquer Satan and death and hell for us. God can say that. It's going to be okay. You'll see because it is going to be okay. And he can speak this way. I'll make every wrong right. Trust me. Because he will by no means clear the guilty. He will administer perfect justice. I'm doing things that even if I told you, you wouldn't believe them. It's going to be okay. Saints, the Lord is trustworthy. There are things in this fallen world that are very hard. There are many things that happen that we don't understand. We look around and we see no earthly good at all. We don't dismiss pain. That's not the takeaway from a text like this. We don't dismiss suffering. We acknowledge it. We weep with people. We stare it in the face and call it what it is. And we encourage one another on account of Christ to trust the Lord. And we can trust Him. And He, for His part... Again, he's so kind. He's so compassionate. He tells us to cast our burdens on him. To cast our anxieties on him. To cast our grief and our laments on him. He gives us words. Think the Psalms. He gives us words to use when we're angry and when we're in pain. He does all of that because he cares for us. And... Because he is big enough to handle our wrestling. Amen. That's point two. Now the conclusion. Another moment of honesty for us. We are all far more earthbound in our thinking than we would ever care to admit. Meaning, we are far more concerned with this life and our circumstances here, 
how we're doing here than we are about realities eternal. Far more than we would ever care to admit, we live out of fear. Think about how we fixate on the news and how we process it. Fear drives us so often. So, as we will depart from one another today in a little while, what do we leave here with in light of a text like Habakkuk 1? A few things. First of all, this should be no surprise to anyone. Consider the Lord Jesus Christ. Consider who He is. God the Son who took on flesh. Truly God, truly man, with a nature like ours yet without sin. Tempted and tried in every way that we are. Yet He never failed. The second Adam, who just like Adam was tempted by the evil one. But unlike our father Adam, Jesus was victorious. Consider what he did in addition to that. He lived a life meditating on God's law day and night. He never walked in the way of sinners or sat in the seat of scoffers. He obeyed God's law always. Personal, perfect, perpetual obedience that God requires to his law, Jesus did it. And he did it in our place. Consider him. Consider his suffering. He suffered his whole life. He was perfected by suffering. Through suffering, he learned obedience as a man. This is the language of Hebrews. And then most pointedly, he suffered in his death. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, to satisfy the perfect justice of God in the place of lawbreakers who should receive that justice themselves. So when we get warped out of our frame over mercy and justice and all of that, consider Christ. If we have trouble with some of these things that we are counted with Adam's sin, if we have trouble with being represented by Adam, we should have trouble being represented by Christ. Christ represents all those who trust in Him. He has accomplished our righteousness and made satisfaction for our sins. But consider what He did beyond His life and His death. We've thought about this some in recent weeks. Christ came as a conqueror. We live in fear. The fear of death. Fear of harm. Fear of judgment. He conquered all of that. Because the children share in flesh and blood, he too partook of the same things. So that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. So that he might liberate us because we've been living in lifelong slavery. He set us free. He conquered death. He conquered the strong man who is the devil. He set the captives free. Having done that, he ascended to heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father where he reigns. He's so in control. He's done the work so adequately and sufficiently that he sat down. He's not scrambling. He's seated. He reigns and upholds the universe by the word of His power. He's building His church that He tells us the gates of hell will not prevail against. You and I are evidence of that, saints. He's building His church. 2,000 years after He ascended, here we sit, 
covered in his blood and righteousness, singing praises to his name, encouraging one another to trust him. Why? Because he's building his church. He's saving his people. He intercedes for us. The Father delights to save us, and Christ delights to intercede for us. He advocates for us when we sin, not once we're better. All authority in heaven and on earth is His. And we belong to Him. So whenever you think about the ebbs and flows in the world and things that are fearful and you're afraid of death, remember that. All authority in heaven and on earth have been given to Christ and you've been united to Him. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Trust him. Secondly, though, what do we leave here with? We leave here with an understanding that we are pilgrims, sojourners, and exiles in this life. This is not our homeland. Which is why we should set our minds on the homeland. That said, hear me. God has given us good things, even in exile. The fall has not taken all of the good out of the world that God made. We will, by God's grace and in His kindness, leave here today and enjoy many good things He's given. And we, of all people, should enjoy the good things God has given, acknowledging that He is the one who gave them. We enjoy them for what they are, good gifts that are not ultimate. And we should see them as foretastes of what awaits. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. That's Ecclesiastes 3. Thirdly, we leave here understanding that we are pilgrims, sojourners, and exiles in this life. You're like, brother, that's a repeat. Yes, it is. Different angle, track with me. This is not our homeland. But we're promised one. We're not there yet. And between here and there, we're going to go through, through some things. We're going to suffer. There will be trials and temptations on every side. We will face thousands, if not millions, of spiritual dangers. So what do we need? Well, we need protection. We need sustenance. And beloved, this is what the ministry of the church is meant to provide the saints. We need Christ. And this is where we most tangibly experience Him in this life. As we gather and assemble in His name, under His word, come into His table. We need Christ and we need each other. We cling to one another as we all cling to Christ. You see, there was another prophet who wrote 
in the midst of exile. He wrote in the midst of exile from Babylon. His name is Ezekiel. So this man, understand this, Ezekiel lived through what God told Habakkuk would happen. And the book that bears Ezekiel's name ends with a description of the land that the Lord will give His people forever. The final words from the prophet Ezekiel are these. There's a city in the midst of that land. And he writes, quote, And the name of the city from that time on shall be, the Lord is there. Writing from exile, the people of God ripped from the land that they'd been given, the holy city destroyed. God's going to give us a land forever. There's going to be a city in the midst of it, and the name of that city is the Lord is there. That city is what all the saints of God from all time have hoped for and desired. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, Canaan, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. So He has. The Lord is good. Let's pray.